electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Pete Najarian. Tonight on Fast, a red alert. COVID cases spiking, stocks tumbling. We'll break down how our traders are navigating this uncertainty. Plus, a WFH, WTF. Yep, I said that. Deutsche Bank suggesting a tax on employees who want to work from home. It is our outrage of the day. And later, it's back. That's right. We're bringing back the Bitcoin bug as a cryptocurrency surges to its highest level since January 2018. But we start off with an earnings alert on Disney shares jumping after hours and better than expected results, although off the after hours session highs. Julia Borson's got all the details. Julia. Melissa, better than expected top and bottom line results, as well as better than expected growth of Disney Plus, ending the quarter with 73 million subscribers, up from 60.5 million last quarter. The company also announcing it will forego its next semi-annual dividend as it did the last dividend. And that's, of course, due to the cost of coronavirus. Of course, investor Dan Loeb had advocated for Disney to do so. Disney shares giving up some of those gains now of about three and a half percent. CEO Bob Chapek saying in the call that's going on right now that Disney's direct-to-consumer business is its bright spot. The growth of Disney Plus speaks volumes about the strength of our IP, our unparalleled brands and franchises, and our amazing content creators, all part of the Disney difference that sets us apart from everyone else. And when you look across our full suite of streaming services, we have exceeded 120 million paid subscriptions worldwide. Meanwhile, Disney's Parks Division reported a smaller-than-expected loss. That division losing $2.4 billion in the quarter due to COVID, but that's down from the $3.5 billion that division lost in the prior quarter. The company also reports that they're reassured by booking trends at Walt Disney World and CEO Bob Chapek urging California to allow its Disneyland resorts there to reopen, saying that people have shown a willingness to visit the parks and they are op- able to operate them safely. So, Melissa, I'm sure it is not the last of that battle between Disney and the state of California. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston with the latest on Disney there. We mentioned uh, off the hours, after our session highs, and that's that happened once it announces that it was suspending uh, the dividend payment that was due January 2021, which is what Dan Lowe wanted the company to do to redirect that money uh, to Disney Plus. Tim Seymour, what do you make of this move? Is it wise? What do you make of the quarter? What was the number you wanted to hear out of, out of Disney? That's a rhetorical question. I mean, I, we know what it was. It was it was DTC. We wanted to hear about Disney Plus. The fact that those numbers came in, uh, they grew about 22 percent, 73 million. Uh, they were expected to be around 66, 67. It, th- that story continues to be much, much stronger. Let's not forget it was it was a month ago we heard about this organizational or this reorg of 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 the company around 
content versus distribution and better aligning entertainment, uh, studio and sports with the distribution channels to let the consumer determine where these things were going to live. This is what the market has been wanting to see from the company and something that wasn't necessarily born out of COVID and, and the fact that studios have not been open. So they had to send uh, Mulan through PVOD and, and through their own channels. But I think that may be where this was naturally going. Uh, the most important dynamic is Disney+. Plus. I don't care that they've suspended the dividend. Obviously, that is what Dan Loeb was pushing for. More spend on content. Go right after the stuff that you need to compete on. So I thought these numbers were very solid. I don't you know, the fact that the, the parks experience was uh, less bad. That's not why you're owning Disney right now. Yeah. Um, Mulan, by the way, I mean, that was a that was an amazing experiment in that they charge users to watch that movie on top of the subscription fee guy, which I know you you shelled out gladly to watch Mulan. I'm, I'm, it's on a loop, actually, in my house. We're hoping that they don't catch me watching it for the 73rd uh, different time. No, I have not watched that movie and I won't be paying for it. But it doesn't matter. I'm not their target audience. And what's interesting is you can make an argument now. Disney's sort of in the sweet spot of this reopen trade and stay at home trade vis-a-vis the Disney Plus numbers. And oh, by the way, operating income for media, I mean, that was 50% better than the street was looking for. Then came in at $1.8 billion. There's a lot to like here. What you don't like and what you have to sort of struggle with and come to grips with is valuation. You know, you're talking about, again, I understand we're in interesting times, but due to make $2.5 a share next year, even if you double that to $5 a share, which is probably best case scenario, Still talking about a stock that's trading at 28 times those numbers, which is expensive by Disney measures. Now, Tim will correctly say, and I'm sure Pete and Karen have views on this, that you know what? They're trying to markets trying to figure out how to give them a Netflix like type uh, valuation. And that's what I think the market is struggling here with at one hundred and forty two dollars a share. Yeah. For a company that's transitioning its model, Karen, for a company that wants to be valued more like a Netflix as opposed to the traditional Disney How do you make that adjustment and how do you start Mm -hmm. thinking about valuation uh, in the out years? Well, I think maybe one way to do it would be if they were actually to pull those two businesses, pull not two businesses, they have many businesses, obviously, but pull the streaming business apart from the rest more clearly, like what Google has has done. To me, that would be one way to sort of highlight that. Um, I think just uh, the dividend thing I want to address I feel like they're doing the right thing for sure, given these massive losses, which aren't shocking in the rest of the business, they have sort of cover to do it. And the other thing is, remember, they have a lot of debt from 20th century or 21st century Fox, whatever they called it before it closed. Um, So they do care about cash flow and they don't need to put the dividend back to where it was. Right. Those aren't the only two. It's not necessarily a binary choice. So I think they're definitely doing the right thing, and they have some cover to do it. I like this release. I thought it was really good. I mean, I agree with Tim, though. The cost control is great, but that's not why you own the story, uh, this, the company, because they are able to control costs while these parks are closed. That's not really a long-term plan. Pete, where do you stand? But I thought it was a very yeah. good quarter. It should be up. Pete, should, should, should Disney have a little bit of the Netflix love, the magic, the valuation that a Netflix has? Uh, some mel uh, absolutely but i think you have to look back and you just say you know the legacy business they're they're getting a pass and they'll probably get a pass for a while based upon the brand itself disney the brand and 
And we all know that people are chomping at the bit. People want to go back to these parks. They've had the closures. They've had all the layoffs and all the rest of it. And that's, that's been a headache for them. But they focused on the right area, and they've been dealing with this whole distribution network and obviously trying to get even more content out there. I think they're doing everything right now, Mel. But the problem is, to Guy's point, what, when you look at this company and you start to try to piece together what exactly would be the right P.E., I think you're almost getting towards, it's not there yet, but I mean, you're, you're almost looking at something that does look a bit like a Netflix valuation already, just based upon where we are in the process. Now, over time, obviously, they'll start making more money and more money and more money, and we'll reopen a lot of these different areas. But the, uh, I guess the big question is when? And, and, and that's what we all are struggling with. At that point in time, we will see some nice jumps. But until then, I think it's going to remain a fairly volatile stock that's going to be between 125 and maybe 150. And for 73 million subscribers, which is granted more than expected, Tim, we've seen this time and time again with a lot of these companies in terms of pull forward. How do you start thinking about that? If 73 million is what you're basing uh, the Disney valuation on on the DTC business, right? Because that's the huge sort of catalyst for the valuation at this point. How do you think about the pull forward effect and, and whether or not that trajectory of, of subscri- subscriber ads will actually keep up? I like the pull forward. This isn't, you know, this isn't pantry stocking. This is getting people uh, on top of a platform that needed to catch up to at least to Netflix and may may be closing fast, especially when you consider all of their properties together. They seem to want to remind you about Hulu and all the other uh, channels they have in, in, in if you amalgamate them all. So I'm not no, I'm not worried about it pulling forward. I, I this is a case, you know, Guy mentioned, do they have it uh, either way, either stay at home or reopening? Maybe. Um, stay at home has certainly pushed the Disney Plus offering. Isn't that what they wanted to do? Didn't they want to, to essentially jam the channels right now? I mean, the, the biggest issue is that the studio, which has been a cash cow and would then be feeding into content, it doesn't stop this. Again, the, this whole new model is about how do we take our content? But studio historically has been uh, an extraordinary run. And I think it's something that, that people are thinking about now as far as Disney. And do they have to reassess that business unit? Um, but no, I, I, I want to see them grow faster. Again, they're pulling forward those 2024 estimates. I think that's only good. All right. Disney shares up 3.4 percent. Conference call about 40 minutes in. We'll keep you posted on any developments there. Meantime, let's get to the markets here. Uh, cases are continuing to surge nationwide. The U.S. reporting a record setting 143,000 new infections on Wednesday. And we got some major news breaking within the past couple of hours. Chicago issuing a stay at home advisory, meaning residents should hunker down and only leave their homes for work, school or essential needs. It takes effect Monday. Chicago's mayor also encouraging residents to cancel Thanksgiving plans ahead of the holiday. Market reaction, well, we did see a sell-off today. The Dow dropping more than 300 points. Every S&P 500 sector finishing in the red. So, Guy, a lot of this was give back um, in terms of that rotation that we saw. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, though. I don't think, it, well, I mean, I don't think the COVID has taken anybody by surprise. We've been talking about it seemingly for months and months, and we've pointed out that things seem to be getting worse. So it's interesting, and I understand why the market would sell off on the back of that. I would submit maybe incorrectly, which is typically, you know, where I fall. But I think Wilbur <laughs> Ross's comments about, oh, by the way, in 2021, we have to focus on the debt and deficit. It's interesting. We haven't heard from him for months. And all of a sudden, uh, comments like that come out, which, are, which I find fascinating that, you know, a week ago, two weeks ago, nobody seemed to care. And all of a sudden, that seems to be front and center in terms of his concerns. I think the market 
took some of its cues from that as well. I, you know, I think Pete would agree that, you know, the VIX trading down to 22-ish the other day mm-hmm. was where we found support. And the VIX is probably going to vacillate somewhere between 22 and 32. And I think we're trending up that way. So it makes sense to me today. I'm fascinated that the market finally seemed to take its cues from COVID. But again, I thought the Wilbur Ross comments under the radar might have been a catalyst as well. Yeah, we saw that VIX uh, peed up 8% in today's session. Yeah. Yeah, the vaccine volatility is absolutely unbelievable, right? I mean, it, it, some days it seems to be in our favor and other days it's not. And clearly we had this big flip around and, and, and everybody that was going away from growth and they were going towards value. And suddenly that trade in just a matter of days completely changed. I mean, look how fast they started to turn on the industrials and the financials and the energy and some of those other other areas that were te- sort of taking the lead for a bit there. And then suddenly that flips. But I still think it's really interesting, Mel, just to watch the, uh, the continued want for certain names. And I think it does still come down to quality, less about growth, less about, you know, some of the other categories we want to throw things in. If you've got quality names, those names seem to be the ones that don't get hit as hard to the downside. And they're the ones that are actually leading when we do have some upside. So I, I still think if you're finding those quality names on a discount, it's a great opportunity for all of us. All right. Let's talk more about today's market action and bring in TD Ameritrade's Stephanie Lewicki. Stephanie, great to have you with us. Great to be here, Melissa. Stephanie, would you agree with Pete in, in terms of the investor search for quality versus trying to trying to name this sort of market move growth versus value or, or take your pick in terms of sectors? I would agree. And I have to say, I am in Chicago and I'm not very happy about the news from Mayor Lori Lightfoot that are going to be locked down for additional 30 days. I was I was hoping to finally get out there. You know, at least my kids could still go to daycare. They're still in school. Their school is open. So that is a blessing. But in terms of of the markets and, and, and what Pete said with we saw Monday and Tuesday, we thought it was this big rotation out of the FANG names, the growth names, the tech names into the value names. We saw the Russell outperform the S&P on a, on a huge way. And we saw that Monday and Tuesday. And we were thinking, is this the new trend? Are our investors starting to go to value and get away from those big growth names and into industrials, into materials. And then it flipped yesterday. And today we got really no love for anything. We did have the NASDAQ leading the way for part of the day, but every S&P 500 sector closed in the red. So no love really for any sector today, Melissa. It's Karen. Uh, Thanks for being on today. Let me ask you, do you think that if we get some positive news out of Moderna, let's say, would be the most likely one in the near term, that the, we will see again that, you know, that value on trade? I, I think we could. So I think it's a binary event, really. On Monday, S&P got up to 36 or 35.80 on the cash. So S&P got up to, uh, uh, sorry, 36.45 on the cash on Monday. So an intraday record high on that Pfizer news. If we get news again on the positive front, I think some of the news might be baked in because, again, we really are close to all-time highs. You know, I, I'm, I'm surprised at the resiliency of the market, but I do think a lot of it right now is based on vaccine news and that it's binary. There's 200-plus companies out there right now that are working on vaccines. At any minute, at any moment, we can hear from one of them, and I would, I would think that we could get a repeat of Monday's uh, action, Karen. Stephanie, great to speak with you. Thank you for your time. Stephanie Lewicki of TD Ameritrade. Um, Tim Seymour, let's cross the boundaries of growth and value. What are some of the uh, quality names that you still like? 
Well, and, and just, you know, the, the things that Stephanie was saying is it, it, we're going to get a, a vaccine at some point. So are, are you really looking to be uh, you don't want to be short the market? And, and I'm not suggesting she was saying that I, I everything I hear is we're, we're going to get a vaccine. Um, and Monday was an important step towards that, even if it wasn't that final stop. So what do you do now? Well, first of all, I, I think there is uh, obviously the most quality is and this is Pete's term and and I think there's even some value in in some of those mega cap tech names. Uh, we'll talk about Cisco's earnings, but I think after being beaten down and a lot of the cyclicality in a name like that um, is is something you watch. But but Google for sure. Uh, Google is a name that that is delivering really for both the stay at home economy and I think the the economy that's going to open back up. So um, this is why no matter what we do, rotate value growth. I mean, I, and I, you know, we, we do this every night because this is what the market gives us every day. But ultimately, that's not a trade that suddenly is going to get shut off. Yeah. Um, and yes, there's, there's an argument about valuations with Amazon and even Apple. And, you know, but I, I think ultimately that is where quality lies. And that's why those names never run too far. Mentioned this yesterday. We've had a 14.5% correction in, in the NASDAQ, an 11% correction in the NASDAQ in the last three months. Uh, maybe that's all you need to get. Yep. Coming up, we are all over that after hours action. Shares of Cisco, as Tim had mentioned, and Palantir. Both stocks on the move on earnings. We've got full team coverage standing by to break down those numbers. And later, a Bitcoin boom. Prices crossing the $16,000 mark for the first time since early 2018. Our Bitcoin baller will be here with some thoughts on how much higher prices can go. There's a lot more fast money on the other side of this quick break. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got earnings alerts on Cisco and the newly public Palantir. Full team coverage standing by to tackle both the names. Let's kick things off with Deirdre Bosa on Cisco's quarter. D. Well, Melissa, investors have, of course, been cautious on this name. Cisco has struggled amid the pandemic. It's down some 20 percent year to date, though, if it can hold on to these current gains, it could cut those losses significantly. It's the company's strong outlook here that's boosting the stock. It suggests it's seeing a recovery, and that's more good news for enterprise demand. Last week, rival Arista Networks reported results that also painted a pickup. Now, on the call, CEO Chuck Robbins said, and I quote here, I think this enterprise thing is going to be fine. When pressed, he said they're seeing a robust pipeline. He says that everyone raced to get set up for work from home, 
earlier in the year, but then they saw a pause in that last quarter as many companies reprioritized what they were going to be spending money on, and that brought them or will bring them back to Cisco. Now, another thing that investors may like this quarter is Cisco's new CFO, Scott Heron. He comes to Cisco from Autodesk, a company that has been successful in migrating com- customers toward a cloud-based model, and that is certainly helpful experience as Cisco executes its own restructuring plan. Melissa, back to you. Debo, thank you. Deidre Bosa, Pete Najarian, you like Cisco. I do, Mel, but I, I must have made a mistake because on Friday I, or I, I was still holding some calls and on Monday I sold them. So unfortunately, I no longer have a position in Cisco, so I'm missing this <laughs> 7% jump in the after hours. But, uh, but it's, re- it's really impressive, Mel, and I think the most impressive part is the fact that what they are seeing going forward and the guidance, that's what's really pr- pressing this stock higher. There's no doubt about it. Security was up about 6%, but other areas of the company and much bigger areas, the hardware was down about 16%. So not everything looked all that great, but they're seeing improvements. And that oftentimes that's the most important thing to hear is what do we see going forward from here? And I think the last thing I would say about Cisco is this. Look at their valuation levels. I mean, we, we talk about value. Well, how great is a value of when you're talking about a 12 or a 14 PE forward? This is a very, very inexpensive company that has a lot of room. And potentially if the CFO that they're bringing in, Heron, can turn things around a little bit, this is a company in the next couple of quarters that really has an opportunity to go much higher. And Karen, that was exactly the point Tim was making in terms of living at sort of that intersection of, of tech and value here. And plus now the CEO saying enterprise or that enterprise thing, um, is going to be fine. That's certainly reassuring. (laughs) It is. I mean, remember what happened last quarter. The stock was 48, Mm -hmm. and then they announced a pretty weak quarter in the stock. So the stock was, I I don't know, 36, uh, maybe 10 days ago. So down 25% from where they reported last time. So I think it's been up the last few days, but it's had the, the benefit of the bar being somewhat low, expectations being low. And so they were also able to report a really good quarter. So, and I agree with Pete, it is cheap. So this one is interesting to me and I like to see they have some uh, good momentum. All right, let's uh, get to Palantir now. That stock is dropping after its first earnings report since going public. Let's get to Josh Lichten on that, Josh. So Melissa, uh, Palantir actually battling back here. It was down hard at the start of their call, now flipping into the green. Uh, checking with Brent Till over at Jefferies. He covers Palantir, wanted his take on the print. To him, metrics look good relative to expectations. Palantir, uh, he notes, raising full-year revenue guidance that suggests 44% growth. He also points out the average revenue generated per customer through the first nine months. That was up 38%. When I talked to Brent, that stock was down about 5%. He notes expectations were super high heading into the print. And he's right. That stock was up about 60% off its early October low. Palantir CEO Alex Karp is not on the call, but the CFO, the COO, and the global head of business development are. They're highlighting some wins, including they say a five-year, $300 million renewal with an aerospace customer. They did not name that customer, but they say this reinforces the strength of Foundry. That's their platform for the private sector. Largest deal, they say, they have done. Turning the government segment, they generate new wins there as well, too, they say, including with the U.S. Army. Foundry, they say, is also supporting the Trump administration's Operation Warp Speed. Melissa, back to you. Josh, I I may be a little obtuse on this, but when you think about average revenue per customer and it going up 38 percent, that implies that uh, the diversity of its customer base is actually broadening, that it's not relying on on a couple of key customers. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously that's a big point the street wants to see. Um, some have expressed concern there when you talk to um, analysts on the street who cover this name, and one is a customer concentration risk. They'll point after 17 years, the company has about 125 customers, so they want to know how big the market is. You know, Brent is one of those analysts. Um, he has a buy on this name, but he wants to see that broaden. As he puts it, you know, they, they clearly are good at landing, in his words, the elephants, pointing out this uh, five-year, $300 million renewal. But the street wants to see is that broadening base, as Brent says, landing uh, less elephants, more antelope. Melissa, back to you. I remember that. That was very vivid. Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton um, with the latest on Palantir. Uh, Guy Adami, I mean, yeah, everybody wants more antelopes instead of elephants for uh, Palantir. What'd you make of the quarter? It seemed all right, except that the stock, you know, really ran into this quarter. Well, that's it. I mean, it went from 9 to 17, seemingly in a straight line. And I think the headline EPS loss scared some people. Then they sort of parsed through it and said, all right, guidance is okay. And I think, I think, the, mar I think the stock is going to sort of settle in somewhere between 12 and 13 and a half, which pretty much makes sense given the run that it's had and given these numbers. In terms of obtuse, Tim Robbins used that word in Shawshank Redemption, and it didn't work out too well for him. I just throw that out there to throw it out, number one. And number two, nobody should be hunting elephants, given the environment that we find ourselves in, with them being on the endangered list. Antelope, I'm sure, are flourishing, so it's maybe beautiful. take a couple of those out, but no on the elephants. <laughs> so you're advocating hunting antelope on this show. That's a first, certainly. No, I'm not advocating. No, I'm more advocating not hunting elephants. Sorry. Okay. Um, Tim, where do you stand on Palantir? <laughs> I'm glad we've gotten away from the animal kingdom here. Uh, I, you know, I, I think it's a case where this is a company that is going to be here for a long time. And those contracts, maybe it is uh, a tighter customer base. And you want to see, what is it, 60 percent of the revenues from 20 percent of the clients. Um, and people want to see more diversity. But right now, for what they do, uh, there's no one else that does it at a time when we're overpaying for software companies. So uh, the fact that this company took a while out of the gate for people to understand what they did for a little bit more research coverage, and then you saw it go from 950 up to 17, this pullback will be bought, in my view. Yeah, Palantir, by the way, is trying to go positive here in the after hours. We've got a lot more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Pay more to work from home? The provocative proposal that suggests we should pay for the privilege to work remotely post-pandemic. And later, cashing in on DraftKings. What options traders are expecting when the sports gambling site reports earnings tomorrow. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the cruise line sinking in today's session. And there could be some new trouble on the high seas. You're looking at pictures of the Sea Dream 1. It is the first cruise ship to set sail in the Caribbean since the pandemic began. A passenger on board reportedly infected with the coronavirus. It left Barbados Saturday carrying 53 people. NBC's Carrie Sanders spoke with one of those passengers about the safety measures the ship was taking to prevent an outbreak. Every passenger had to be tested before even flying to Barbados, where the crew started, and getting on the ship within three days, and then tested again at the pier. He went on to say passengers were not required to wear a mask on board until two days into the trip. This is a smaller cruise line, as we had mentioned. This is not a publicly traded one. But for anybody who's thinking about a cruise, they're going to say, take a look at that Sea Dream 1 that went off and there is one COVID case on it, Pete. Yeah, not good. <laughs> well, Mel, this is something we're give, we've been grappling with this for a really long period of time, right? I mean, the, the whole idea, it used to be airplanes, then people started to get eased back into that. And it seems like we are starting to hit numbers again that are, that are at least tolerable. But with the cruise ships, yeah, this is something that's been going on. And people are all betting on something that's going to be very, very positive from a vaccine perspective. But wow, this is, uh, this is certainly something that's not very uh, uh, pleasing for, I think, the rest of the big publicly traded companies. Yeah, it's a pl- publicity disaster for the mm, cruise industry right. guy. And I putting aside the fact that you will you would not be caught dead on a cruise. <laughs> let's put that aside. <laughs> Unbiased opinion on the yeah, cruise yeah, lines because yeah. it is viewed as I mean this these stocks are viewed as the ultimate the ultimate vaccine play, right? Yeah, and Karen has talked about this a number of times. The way to play uh, a potential vaccine or what seemingly is going to be a vaccine in the summer is vis-a-vis the cruise lines, not the, not the pharmaceuticals. And she's 100 percent right. But I think what she would also say is going to be huge volatility from here to now. We mentioned the Jimmy Cliff song the other day. I won't do it again. But I just want to point out, I actually saw this Love Boat episode a few months ago where uh, I think Gopher talks to Captain Steubing about this. So it's amazing how... Art is imitating life or vice versa, Mel. It's fascinating to me. I just find it shocking there was only one person. I mean, I think it's going to get worse would be my strong guess on this. So if you were to be caught dead on a cruise, and you've got to be careful about saying that now, I guess, given the environment that we're in, I think that um, you've got to look to delay it post vaccine yeah which is very obviously very bad for the cruise lines but they do have some cash to survive all right here's another story that we're tracking for you tonight on the outbreak a research team at deutsche bank is proposing a five percent tax on people who want to continue to work from home post-pandemic researchers justify the tax because those working from home are saving money on things like commutes eating out work clothes dry cleaning They are contributing less to the economies of the cities they work in. They say tax proceeds could reach about $48 billion a year in the U.S. and could help subsidize those who cannot work from home or those making less because of COVID. Tim, when we were discussing this on our midday call, you're the one who came up with, um, what was it, WFHWTF? The W... Yeah, well, it's that that is my response. And this is a family show. So let's just use those initials and people know what they stand for. This is outrageous. And, and, and you know, talk about 
first of all, this is a Marxist com, you know, assessment of, of how people should react to changing conditions. But also, hey, how about a reallocation of wealth from the commercial real estate industry? Like, I'm, I'm paying uh, $20 for a cheeseburger at lunch when I work in an office because the office spaces are so expensive that someone else is making money on so th this whole thing is so absurd. The fact that we could be living cheaper and reallocating our monthly wallet in a different capacity and actually not having to spend. I mean, how about a $20 cab ride in, in, or, or a subway ride in infrastructure I, I, that isn't supported anyway by the government? Don't get me started. I mean, this is outrageous. And I realize Deutsche Bank is, is a European bank. And, and so maybe the, some of this is the guaranteed income dynamic at work here. But uh, I think this is an awful idea. Sorry. I was, I was wondering when somebody was going to ring up Deutsche Bank, the European bank, and no surprise it's coming from a European bank. Um, uh, Guy, you know, it's interesting because companies have already said that they're going to reduce their, you know, some of the companies are going to reduce their footprint in terms of real estate. They're going to reduce salaries for workers who do choose to work at home. The cost savings are not only borne by the workers. I mean, if you are going to start thinking about taxing somebody for saving money, it's not just the workers here for sure. Yeah. Uh, proper decorum prohibits me from using the words I would like to use to describe Deutsche Bank's idea. I think you can understand it. Um, and you actually mentioned a few in, in the opening monologue, which I actually was, was amazed by that you actually used the initials. But with that said, I mean, maybe Deutsche Bank should take into consideration the lack of traffic on our roads and the lack of stress it's going to put on our infrastructure. Maybe I should get a rebate because I'm not going in and out of the Lincoln Tunnel every day. Or maybe Deutsche Bank should just focus on Deutsche Bank. And but for this story, we wouldn't be talking about Deutsche Bank. So maybe that was their end goal at the end of the day anyway. Free publicity for Deutsche Bank. I'll be a negative. I guess all publicity is good publicity. Um, Karen, what do you think? This would, this would be a way of raising money. And it's not just in the U.S. Deutsche Bank also says that it would raise 15.9 billion euros in Germany, 6.9 billion pounds in the U.K. I mean, this could be a massive sort of redistribution of wealth globally. Yeah, I'm actually not opposed to the idea. Uh, don't tell my husband I said that. He, you know, I probably wouldn't oh. agree. But I do feel like we're in a, you know, unique spot, to, or a lucky spot to be able to work remotely. And there are others who can't. And I think that it would have to be, though, for a very limited amount of time, not one of those open end, we'll put a tax on it, we'll never take it off. That's part of the reason I think people don't like new taxes, because that happens a lot. The other thing about it, though, I think it would be very hard to enforce. You know, what if you come in? What if you need to come in for some amount of time? How do you how do you adjust that? I don't know. But conceptually, I'm actually not opposed to it. And I don't normally love taxes. The faces on the other traders, they, they look appalled, Karen. <laughs> Just appalled. Really? Yeah. I'm proud of her. Sorry. I'm proud of her. She's, she's a nice mind. woman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, coming up, a Bitcoin bonanza. The cryptocurrency is soaring again now up nearly 125% this year. So is this rally here to stay? But first, Pete is winding up for a marvelous fast pitch. The one chip stock he thinks could be a total home run for your portfolio. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Looking for a marvelous new stock pick for your portfolio? Well, look no further because Pete Nigerian is here, ready to fire off a name. Pete, take it away. 
All right, Mel. So I'm going to give you Marvell Technology. And what makes this very interesting is we were just talking about the whole growth uh, process and, and whether or not you want to be a growth or value and all these other things. This is one of those companies. They've got a lot of growth. They've done a lot of their growth through acquisition. And Matt Murphy, the CEO over there, he's been there since 2016 at Marvell. Done an unbelievable job. Cavium was a $6 billion deal. A couple of, uh, of, of other acquisitions that were in the $500 million sort of a range. But most recently, Infi that he actually paid about $10 billion. Now, they did that in both cash and stock. I'll get to that in just a second. But the other thing is, this just enhances everything that they wanted to do, which is the sweet spot of the semiconductors. You've got 5G, uh, which is absolutely everybody's talking about that, of course. And they talk about that in connection with just about every one of the semis that has got exposure to that. But that's huge. This puts them in the sweet spot of that. But they also have uh, the, the cloud data center, which has been a monster. So they really have everything that they're looking for, and they've been doing everything fiscally disciplined. They're doing everything that the, the right way. And what I mean by that is through this acquisition, they actually cut back on what they were going to do with the repurchase plan. So they're doing everything right, in my opinion. They have great cash flow. The fundamentals of this company are very solid. So when I look at this company going forward, I did buy it on the dip when they made the acquisition, right around $38 a share, sort of in that range. So um, it's, an, it's a name I believe in. I own this name, and I think I'm going to own it for quite a while because I like their strategy right now. I don't know if you've got the chart up or not, but if you look at the one-year chart or you go back five years, whatever you want to do, this is a stock that's going higher. Um, I think Guy has a question, although Russell might have a question. He's he's also uh, behind you. Oh, you can see Russ. I'm yeah. sorry. I can't tell what you can see. So <laughs> Russell's made this appear. I apologize. So, Pete, love your pitch. I'm probably giving away my answer. And I know you don't buy stocks for this reason. But given the environment we find ourselves in with a $28 billion market cap, could Marvell be an acquisition target by somebody? They absolutely could. That would make a heck of a lot of sense. We've seen bigger bites taken off recently in the space. So absolutely, Guy, I think that's a possibility. I guess the, the only question left would be who? Who's going to make that move? And, and I don't have the answer, but I certainly think this is a stock that could be an acquisition target, just like they've been targeting themselves. Hmm. All right, no more questions here. Time to vote. Are you buying Pete's pitch on Marvell Technology? Karen, what do you say? Yeah, well, I'm saying actually, yes. Can you see that as a buy? But I probably need Pete's help with an option strategy to do it because I'm not really sure of my downside. One sort of interesting thing, just as the timing goes, Cisco, which I believe uh, Marvell is a decent-sized supplier of Cisco, so that bodes well uh, in the short term. So, yes. All right, Tim, what do you say? You know, Pete, despite that awful baseball hat you put on, it wasn't a baseball hat. I'm going to buy this one. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, I think Soria Marvell has some great secular trends, including 5G rollout. I, the stock had had a big run into that acquisition. Uh, some arguing not terribly cheap, but I like uh, the forces at work here keep this stock well bid. Guy Dami. You see, it's interesting. Uh, can you read that, Mel? Because I know we get some yes, glare. No, it it's, says MRVL. Still cheap, in my opinion. And if you look at their EPS growth, I think it is a cheap stock. And you know what? Given the world we find ourselves in, I think somebody might be looking to gobble them up at some point. Good power pitch, Pete. Yeah. All right. The traders have clearly spoken. It's your turn out there. Are you buying Pete's fast pitch on Marvell Technology? Head to Twitter. Vote in our live poll at CNBC Fast Money. We will reveal the answer later in the show. Plus, attention, hodl gang. Bitcoin is at levels we haven't seen in three years. What is the play now? Our crypto baller will join us next to break it all down. Much more fast into.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin booming and crossing the $16,000 mark for the very first time since early 2018 today. It's not just traders getting bullish on digital currencies. ECB President Christine Lagarde also saying that the EU should be prepared for a digital euro. For more on what all this means for the cryptocurrency space, let's bring in our resident Bitcoin baller, BK, who joins us on the phone. Beeks, good to talk to you. Yeah, good to be here, especially on a day with Bitcoin above 16,000. Yeah, what do, what do you think it is? And we've had notable investors come out recently endorsing a Bitcoin, whether it be Bill Miller or Stan Druckenmiller, you name it. Um, the Christine Lagarde remarks are interesting. I would think it was either validation of Bitcoin or it would be competition for Bitcoin. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, certainly having, you know, high-profile investors come out and say that they own it takes a lot of the career risk away from investors, professional investors who want to put it in their portfolio. And that's what we're starting to see. Um, some of the buyers coming in are institutional investors. Um, in terms of the digital euro or digital yuan or digital dollar, it's actually not competition for Bitcoin because Bitcoin's core value proposition is that it has a fixed supply. Uh, I can't imagine the ECB issuing a digital currency that is going to have a fixed supply. In fact, I would think it would make it a, a lot easier for them to digitally print more money. So I actually think it's more, those are more of a risk for fiat currency holders, and it highlights why Bitcoin is a digital gold-like product. Um, are you, can you venture to forecast how high this thing can go by year-end? Yeah, so, so forecasting the future is very hard, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> but I, well, here's what I will say about it is that, um, you know, Bitcoin's been above 16,000, I think, 12 days uh, in its entire history. Um, I suspect there probably are some people that bought in late 2017, 2018 uh, that have had a long three years are going to want to get out of it. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a pullback. But in the longer run, my view on this is the market total value of all the Bitcoin existence is $300 billion. The total value of all the gold in existence is $10 trillion. If Bitcoin is actually going to disrupt some of the gold market, $300 billion total valuation is the wrong number. And you can see that there's a, a lot of scope for upside. And then add into that, most, if you look back at the halvenings, which we talked about in the spring, where most of the gains come are the year after the halvening. And we're seven months into that year after the halvening. And, you know, Bitcoin's doing what it should do. So there could be five more months here of a pretty good upside. BK, thanks for calling in. We always like talking to you, our resident Bitcoin I, I, I always like talking. <laughs> I think he hung up the phone and he's still talking. He's still talking out there. Um, Karen, uh, you have a little bit of Bitcoin. What do you think is driving this? I mean, Stan Druck, I mean, all these big name investors saying, yeah, I'm, I'm in Bitcoin now. Right. So that Paul Tudor Jones, Stan Druckenmill, Bill Miller, I think a couple of other things, obviously the PayPal news, mm. um, Square, right, having Bitcoin. So that's interesting to me. Even JP Morgan now has a, you know, a crypto desk and um, a, a crypto product, I believe they're working on, or actually maybe even in use. So remember, love Jamie Dimon, but at one point he did say it was a fraud. I don't agree with that. So I'm still long. Who knows where it goes? Obviously, it's extremely volatile, but I am in it for the long term because I believe the theory and I think we're going to be printing more money one way or another. All right. Coming up, DraftKings earnings on deck. How are options traders placing their wagers ahead of this big report? We'll have that trade next. Plus, don't forget to vote in our Twitter poll. Are you buying Pete's fast pitch on Marvell Technology? Head 
to at CNBC Fast Money on Twitter to vote. And as we head to break, take a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking to the Ford CEO exclusively. Catch that full interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. Meantime, more Fast Money straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Options traders betting big on DraftKings ahead of its earnings report tomorrow. But will the odds be in their favor? Let's go to Mike Coe of Optimize Advisors. Mike. Hi there. So we did see more than two times as many calls as puts trade. That's actually been true for the last couple of weeks. Right now, the options market is implying that the stock is going to move about 9% higher or lower after they report earnings tomorrow morning. The most active options were the weekly 45-strike calls. Buyers of those were paying about 70 cents. And obviously, since it has to get above that strike by at least the amount of money that they paid, they're actually betting on a more than 9% move to the upside after they report earnings. Pete, how are you uh, trading DraftKings? You know, I still own the stock, Mel, but, but based on what Mike's talking about and how, how much premium there is right now, it's a great buy right. So I'm owning the stock. I continue to sell upside calls against that because the premiums are absolutely extraordinary right now, to Mike's point. I mean, huge implied volatilities there. Yeah, Tim? If you bought the stock last week, it was also a great buy, right? In other words, you bought it after a 45% pullback on a stock that I think is going to be one of the dominant players in an online sports betting uh, industry that's just picking up steam. So, they, I mean, they're, they're giving you some sense of the percentage of the overall market they want. Uh, they're claiming 22 to 23% CAGR over the next 12 years. I, I think that's nothing compared to where this industry is going. So I, I'm long. I realize the valuation is tough. All right. Uh, thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe. Uh, be sure to catch DraftKings CEO Jason Robbins on Squawk on the Street tomorrow to discuss those earnings results. And for more options action, tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Vote, vote, vote. Still time. Are you buying Pete's fast pitch on Marvell Technology? Head to Twitter. Vote in our live poll at CNBC Fast Money. We'll reveal the answer later in the show. Plus, we've got your final trade. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time to find out if the viewers at home were buying Pete's pitch on Marvell Technology. And Pete, this was a marvelous pitch because nearly 70% of viewers are buying it. You hit a home run here, Pete. Um, by the way, the stock is up in the after-hour session to boot. So you're having the time of your life. Time for the final trade now. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour, what do you have to say for yourself? I, 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 Pete's, I, I said Pete's awesome, man. That was a great job. Um, I'm a buyer of GM on weakness. Again, a big pullback today for a story that I think is just catching a bid uh, and is going higher. Pete Nigerian. I'm going to stick with MRVL, Mel. I, 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 I like the pitch. <laughs> People like the pitch. I guess the stock's going higher. I like it. <laughs> Glad you like the pitch. Uh, Karen, what do you say? <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to use my whiteboard again just to, as an artistic expression, Cisco, that's their logo, which is probably not even intelligible. I'm better with financial models than artistic models. But anyway, Cisco, I like the quarter. All right, Guy. Deutsche, Deutsche Bank should stay in their lane, number one. Uh, don't at me, please, anybody. <laughs> Deutsche Bank, number two, Dan Nathan chimed in, and he voted for yes. Pete's power pitch. Even Dan likes it. And although it. I might... Even Dan likes it. And although I might rue the day, the reversal and Sarepta today was powerful. SRPT. All right. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.